This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Ron. How are you doing? Hey, Nate. I'm doing pretty good. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? Good. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Welcome to the Ruby Blend. How are you guys doing this week? Great. It's been a good week. I've gotten back to doing some Ruby at work. A little bit of React in there, but it's nice to get back to doing some Ruby. Nice. As I know you've had some, some changes in your life. Is that something you're willing to talk about on the show? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the changes has, ha- haven't happened yet. So once they happen, on. I'll uh, make an announcement. Changes are in the works, so... Exciting. Exciting when you have changes in your in your life. <laughs> we are getting close on CodeFund to release some new features. We're really leaning on Stimulus Reflex to make that happen. And it should make it easier for us to sell and provide more value to our publishers and more value to our advertisers as well. Makes our inventory a little bit more predictable, makes sales a bit more predictable. Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about it. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated piece, though. So we're going to cautiously roll it out this week. Very cool. Also doing a little bit of work on Stimulus Reflex. One of the things that that was kind of interesting, I don't know if anybody noticed, but Basecamp announced their Hey.com, essentially Gmail competitor, just mail service competitor. Is that what the the big, like hush-hush, something big is coming? That that was their, yeah, that's their product. That's not the stuff that the, you know, the revolutionary secret new awesome thing to do web development with, but they're, they've built that stuff to for hey.com and probably the next version of Basecamp too. I'm sure they're using all of it in both products. Yeah. I took a, a brief look at Hey. So I assume you signed up to get the information once it's uh, available. Yeah. I, I got on the early list. We'll see what happens. My goal is kind of funny. Like some of the, the, the privacy concerns around email open rates and things like that are aren't as important to me as what I would like to do is replace Slack with actual email. So that's what I'm hoping I can do with, with Hey, if the, depending on what, where they take it in terms of product feature set, I'm hoping maybe I can get an asynchronous version of Slack that is more effective, more searchable, more, I don't know, just makes my life better and kind of eliminate some of that interruption economy that you get from Slack. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, if you get off of Slack, then who's going to be having to pull me along all day long? (laughs) I'm sure it'll still be there, but I'm going to turn off all notifications from it and just check it occasionally. Um, You only have to drown for half a day before he realizes that you're uh, pinging it, that you've pinged him. Yeah. Sometimes I ping him about things that require immediate look, like not everything, obviously, but sometimes... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is there because I, I, you know, Eric, I've told Eric to, that he can text me if there's something that requires immediate attention because I do have a lot of my notifications turned off. And sometimes my kids will play with my phone and like all the volume is off on my phone and I'll have it screened down and I won't even know that I'm getting text messages either. <laughs> and then I check stuff and everybody's panicking and trying to get my attention. Yeah, I was there for one of those days. Eric was just Every couple messages, he was just uh, tagging Nate, and then he did three or four Nates in a row in one message. It was it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, Ron and I have some work uh, history together too. 
we had a we had an individual that that did not understand how to use Slack. So we were on there with notifications and and able to get notified, you know, at, at, at will. But there was one individual that if you waited even two minutes to respond to a question, it was hello, hello, and it would just keep getting larger and larger and more caps like it would go all caps it would go exclamation points and then more exclamation points and it's just like hello 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 and then a <laughs> bunch of o's at the end of it, like hello with <laughs> like if, if you type that's in all exactly caps, how my mom texts me <laughs> yeah, it was pretty terrible it just seemed like he felt if he typed in all caps that we would hear it better <laughs> <laughs> yeah so anyway that's my that's my hopes and dreams for what Hey might be, but I don't. I don't know. It may just be a um, email client that is more privacy focused. I don't know. Andrew did do some due diligence there and uh, pulled some source code down from Hey.com to kind of get a sneak peek at what might be coming from the Basecamp team and in the next version of Rails or at least the next version of Turbolinks, possibly. Anything to report there, Andrew? Yeah, it took me. I didn't realize how to apply the source maps at first. So, like, I thought I was all smart because, like, I think it was, like, hey.com was their marketing page. And I wanted to see if, like, hey.com had the actual app on it, and it actually did, funny enough, which is exactly what we do at CodeFund, too. So that's the only reason I even, like, bothered wasting a few seconds to try it. And, yeah, I read through their the files they had on there. I didn't realize how to apply source maps at first, so I kind of read minified, basically minified code for, like, an hour. That was interesting. Like you could still read it, but once I figured out how to apply the source maps, then I was like, oh, I can actually see what this variable name is, not just what it's doing. But it was it was interesting. It looked like whatever they're going to do is going to be really built on top of TurboLinks. There wasn't a lot of JavaScript in there. Like it was definitely a small amount for what I thought they may be having to do for an email client. So I took a look at that code as well. What impressed you about it? Did you have any takeaways? other than it being small amounts of JavaScript? I'll say this, and Eric said the same thing when he was looking. He, he looked at me and he was like, this looks like code Nate wrote. And it, it, it is really like, yeah, it's kind of almost the way that we've been running Simulus at CodeFund. It's like very simple. They're using like an application controller for their Simulus controllers. They're storing a bunch of, if anytime they needed like the user ID or something in their JavaScript, they were putting it in meta tags, which I thought was interesting from the Rails, the Rails app would put it in a meta tag and then they could pull that down with stimulus. But I don't know, it was just like clean, simple, nothing like crazy going on code. It was actually really nice and readable. Yeah, I mean, the, at a high level, my, my takeaway is how, how well researched some of this stuff is. Like they've got very elegant solutions that are taking advantage of essentially DOM technology that's been around for a bit. I mean, some of it is kind of bleeding edge, no Microsoft browser support, for example, on some of it. But yeah, it, if you understand the platform you're building for and really take the time to, to research it, you can, you can build incredibly elegant tooling. And that, that was my main high level takeaway. One, one neat specific from it was they, they have this, I don't know how many people are using current attributes, it's a way to manage global variables between your application, like architectural layers. So for example, you may not have access to a 
essentially like the, the current user object, if you're down inside of a model method, or if you're using like the service object pattern, you may need access to something like that. And you don't want to pass that variable into every method or every constructor all the way through the stack. And so one way to handle that is with global variables and current attributes is a, a pretty nice and elegant way to, to facilitate something like that. On this new tooling that they've got, they're now hoisting that up and making the same current attributes available from that you can do on the back end through data attributes. So you just tack it on as a data attribute on a DOM element. And now you've got a current object that you can import into your JavaScript you know, files or controllers or whatever you're doing and gain access to those current variables. So it's very easy to share those global variables that you're managing on the back end and push them up and give them to the front end as well. Yeah, the other thing is that they were using HTTP2, I think. Yeah, that was something we were kind of curious about because we've been a little nervous on the stimulus reflex side of things or the cable ready. I don't know if nervous is the right word, but we've just been curious as to what the Basecamp team's been working on because they, they teased us a bit and said, hey, we're going to have some new technology for you. And it's a revolutionary way to build web apps. So we've been kind of curious. That's why we pulled this code and started taking a look. But everything that they're doing so far seems like it's using the HTTP protocol rather than WebSockets, which there's some really good reasons to do that. The discourse team has some articles about why you would do that as opposed to, and they even have a, a library that facilitates it, a message bus. If you haven't taken a look at that, it's worth taking a look at. Yeah, Sam over there at Discourse has some really strong arguments as to why you may not want to use WebSockets. And it looks like they're, they're kind of adhering to that. And probably for a lot of the same reasons as my guess. But that actually also makes me a little bit happy because Cable Ready and Stimulus Reflex both use WebSockets. And there are advantages on that front, too. So it's just a matter of what trade-offs you want to take and what you're willing to accept. I'm curious if they tried to use Action Cable and WebSockets and whether or not they experimented with that. Yeah, the one thing that I do think is funny, I think a lot of the criticism that they get for being their own tool builders, and I do think they maybe build a few too many of their own tools, but that actually allows them to control their destiny. So I understand it. But they, they often get a lot of criticism leveled at them, not just for building so many tools, but also for not not exploring these other avenues or not, you know, why did they just reject something like React out of hand? But I think it's a pretty long stretch to, to assume that they haven't been experimenting with all of the technologies at their disposal and then making a judgment based off of that experience. Yeah, that's what I would expect. I mean, those guys seem pretty smart and not to be the ones to kind of just dismiss something without really checking into it. So. So, Ryan, you mentioned you're back into Ruby a bit with a little bit of React. Is it React sprinkles and mostly Ruby? <laughs> no, it's just I'm back working on the main parts of our application. I was doing a lot of library updating and updating lambdas from Python 2 to Python 3. So most of that is done, at least the, the stuff that I'm going to be taking care of. So I'm back in normal, quote unquote, normal development which is the, the React app and the Ruby API server. You know, it, as much as I complain when I have to do it, it is nice to be able to, you know, dip my toes into other things. But then, you know, 
at a certain point, I'm just like, uh, it's nice to be back doing what I enjoy doing. So for the time being, I'm back on React. I, I had to relearn how we do React, though. Like after spending eight months on it and then not doing it for uh, probably a month and a half, two months, I had to <laughs> reacclimate myself to it. Now, the way we do React is that, so you've got like, a special approach or is it just that there's so much flexibility with it that you've seen different teams using it different ways or what? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's so, I don't, I, I, I haven't seen where the community is kind of settled on one way to, to do react and redux. So it's kind of left up to each individual team as far as I know. And so, yeah, I had to, re-understand, okay, so I've got my component here and we import our actions, but then the actions import the API modules and also, you know, eventually goes through the reducers. And so I spent, you know, like two hours just trying to retrace where, you know, the code paths that, that, that different functions went down just so I knew where I needed to be to add this particular functionality I was trying to add. So it's not like riding a bike. Has Ruby coming back to the Ruby side of it? Are you doing much work there? I mean, has it been, are you just getting back on the bike on that side? Yeah, I mean, but I don't know if it's just because I've done Ruby longer or if the, I mean, I think it's probably because every, I, you know, I've done Ruby for longer, but every with the exception of maybe one project that I was on, every Ruby project is is the same. I mean, uh, structurally, the way data flows, you know, you know what you're getting into when you get into a, a, a Ruby app. So, I mean, whether it was the app that I had just been working on or a new app that I'm jumping into, I'm fairly confident in how it's going to, you know, w- what code goes where. So, I mean, that's, that, that wasn't a, a big deal. But yeah, having only done React, you know, mainly this year in this particular, the setup that we have, I guess it's just not quite ingrained itself in, in me. So I, I like React once it's all set up for the, the components and everything, but it's still like coming back to it, I was like, yeah, man, this is still a little much you know, just to add some simple features, you know, I'm touching four or five files. So. Yeah. I would say that convention over configuration that you alluded to is really more of a characteristic of rails itself than it is Ruby, the ecosystem, right? Cause we can go build custom things, you know, you pick Sinatra and, and, you know, all, a whole set of different gems that, that are nowhere to be found in rails land. Right. But right, right, you, yeah. you can, you can still have those custom solutions if you want them, but rails kind of gives us that shared standardized tooling. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that convention over configuration, you jump into a rails uh, project, you pretty much know what's going on. So. Yeah. That reminds me very much of Yehuda Katz has a, a keynote, a RailsConf keynote where he talks about the benefits of shared tooling. Which is one of the things that I think is interesting, like even in the, in the React ecosystem, like getting everyone to kind of agree on a particular strategy or approach has proven more difficult. And I don't know what it is about the JavaScript community that makes, you know, converging on a set of shared tools more difficult there. Maybe it's just the, the sheer number of developers that are in that pool. 
or maybe, I, I don't really know what it is yet in terms of why JavaScript has struggled to, to really land on a set of shared tooling, even within an ecosystem like React, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess it's like freedom is, is nice and all, but sometimes constraints are beneficial for kind of guiding those decisions, you know, settling on, you know, this is how, this is how the community is going to do it. Not that there aren't other ways. And if you really want to go your own way, you're free to, but just kind of having a, a more explicit path that people can go down when they don't want to make all the decisions, you know? That's always been my problem when trying to work in the React ecosystem. I really like Gatsby. I've built a few sites with Gatsby and I can just get sucked into adding tools to it. When I was playing with TypeScript, that was even bigger because there's even less of a, a golden path there. So i you know, I spent way more time trying to configure the project. And because I, it, it's almost fun. To, it's fun to configure it, honestly, but it prevents you from really getting in there, I think, and just working at it. I've kind of run into the same problem with Ruby Gems because there is more of a structure that they give you, but it's definitely not as clear as it is with Rails. Like some people think you should put all your development dependencies in your gem file. And if you're familiar with like the way of, like a bundler created Ruby gem gets added and other people think you should put in your gem spec. And then there's like all this, the different ways people are writing the files in their lib folder. And I don't know, I got sucked into that too, as well as some of the tooling with that, just finding all these cool tools, people across the Ruby gems ecosystem we're using and just wanted to add all of it. So, but yeah, Rails is just so much out of the box. Like once you get away from that, I think it becomes a lot harder especially for mainly Rails developers, especially juniors, because all of a sudden you're in the Wild West and you don't, like there's everything that you can grab and it's hard to say like, no, I don't need that when it looks like, oh, well, maybe I do need this really crazy test file formatting thingamajigger or I need to like add like seven plugins to ESLint and then add Prettier on top of it. Like it's like tempting to get sucked into kind of like fun with tinkering with that, but at the end of the day, it can be a couple hours and you haven't written any code for the actual thing you're building. Yeah, like configuration is like developer quicksand. You just get stuck, you know, the, the, the yak shave. Yeah, three hours have gone by and you haven't actually done anything that you've been trying to do. <laughs> Tinkering with your Vim config the whole time, yeah. yeah. It's a balance. Adding tools to like correctly format your readmes for I went on like a little kick like a week or two ago on like refactoring readmes that I had or finding like the perfect format for a readme and the tools to build that and and then I went over and added pull requests to someone else who said that they wanted their readme updated and I was like all right cool and just it yeah it was quicksand I was like I spent like five or six hours I could have done a lot of things right in this time but I've been refactoring a readme. <laughs> That's pretty good. I've also this week I've been messing with my Notion setup. Do you guys you guys ever use Notion? I have the app. I think CodeFund has an account. I don't think I've ever opened it. So, so like I am deep into Notion and like I've set up my my Notion setup. I have like everything running my life, like all my tasks, all my projects, you know, freelance work, all of that stuff 
in there and it's it's actually really nice for that but this week i fell in the quicksand of, of tweaking my my notion setup and i fell pretty hard this week in in that one i've tried to do stuff like that but i've gotten to the point where i know that i'm going to do that so i just stop taking notes sometimes <laughs> i'll write them on paper sometimes and i'll do this and that but i've tried so many things over past six years, like pretty much every project management software you could think of I've used or tried all the note-taking softwares. And I just, I can't ever keep up with it. And I've gotten to the point where I'm, I'm done trying. Yeah. You know what though? Like one of the things that I do least in Notion is actually take notes. I use it for like <laughs> my, my, yeah, I use it for my to-do list. I use it for my daily planner I have uh, like a, a template that I uh, start a new page, uh, a new template of this like daily journal every morning and have like, you know, gratitude and like words that describe like how I'm feeling or whatever. And, you know, tracking meals, I'm trying to lose weight. So I do like my meal tracking in there and yeah, my to-do list, all my to- to-dos are in there. And yeah, I'll write a note, of, you know, occasionally, especially like if I'm, listening to an audio book or something like that. I'll take notes on it in there. But I mean, I really like the tool. It's pretty versatile, but yeah, if you, uh, if you want to get it set up to your liking, be prepared to spend hours. Yeah. I just saw an article where somebody was uh, touting the virtues of their productivity tool, which is just for the last 10 years, they've just been using a text file. (laughs) Hey, whatever works, you know, (laughs) whatever works. I actually saw another one that said that writing things down physically with a pen and paper actually does something cognitively to like kind of jar you out. Like it it actually sticks with you more, supposedly. Apparently there's science behind it. Yeah. I've gotten real deep down that rabbit hole before, like all the way to like memory palaces and weird memorization tricks and writing things down like that. But it just, nothing, none of those things stick for me. So that's why I don't do it. But but there is there is science behind you writing something down and it will stick in your mind a lot longer. Yeah, it just takes up too much space, you know? Like, you know, I heard those studies too, but I'm just like, okay, I've written it down. Now what? Like, I've got notebooks of stuff <laughs> that, that I've written down and, you know, I don't really go through them anymore. Like, I guess I could just throw them out, but it seems like a waste when I can just store them as ones and zeros. Of course, if the the VC bubble implodes on that company, then then it'd be like throwing all your notebooks out anyway. True, but at least I won't have to store them in the meanwhile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I started doing was, and I figured out like this eventually just kind of started working for me. I just used the Apple Notes, Apple Reminders, and what was the other Apple thing I use? Apple Notes, Reminders, Bookmarks, and yeah, just sticking plainly to that. Because I'm if I'm always in Safari... Why like have like a book manager, bookmark manager tool when I can just use Safari? And, like why create like some custom note software that I'm going to have to have installed, like install the app on every computer. I always use Safari or Apple and I already have an iPhone. So everything's syncing across that. That's what's worked for me. Yeah. I've noticed that with uh, like, I'm starting to have those thoughts about one password because I'm, I'm constantly telling Safari, no, no, don't use the native Apple thing. Just use one password. But they're almost to the point where they've, they've got me willing to look at their solution because I'm still using like, I'm, a, I'm an old school 1Password user, but they've changed the product so many times 
that the way we got around the lack of uh, like teams because they didn't have a teams feature before where you could share passwords. So we, we set it up and started using Dropbox to, to facilitate sharing passwords across you know, people or teams. And I still use it that way, but they've made it increasingly difficult or, or more obfuscated to kind of figure out how to make that happen. But every time there's an upgrade and I upgrade one password, it creates a new vault, essentially copies the other one. And so I have like four duplicates of every password inside of it from all the various upgrades that I've done. And I try to clean it up, but it's still like really messy. So that pain is, has gotten to the point where, and I know like using Dropbox to share passwords through one password is not the golden path that they want you on. Uh, and so I'm fighting, kind of fighting the tool now. And so I'm like, eh, maybe I'll just bite the bullet and go all Apple. I don't know. Talk about some developer quicksand cleaning up your one password. Yeah, I've attempted oh, yeah. that many times and have not been successful. Oh, you want to hear the secret? <laughs> you just move to a completely new password management system. Oh. That way, whatever you don't bring over there, I've done that. I've moved from the Apple passwords. I've moved, then I moved to LastPass. Now I'm trying to move to one password. If it's not my one password, then I obviously don't need it. And then I'll just shut it all out. True. And then I tried to go through and like clean out any accounts that I have laying around. So my one concern about going just straight with the Apple one, does it only work in Safari? No, it works everywhere. Oh, okay. So you could just like use on it. all your apps and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I did. Cause I know Safari will ask about it. And I'm like, yeah, well, cause you know, if I'm logging into an app on my phone, that's not in the, in the browser you know, one password works for that. So I didn't know if the Apple one did too. Well, yeah. And you're also screwed if you don't have your, any of your Apple products basically. So it's nice to like diverse. I always keep like some passwords like online in a password manager, but for the majority of things, I can just leave them in my Apple vault. I'm kind of changing the subject now, but did you have any other takeaways, Andrew, from the, the source code you were looking at as we were cracking open and trying to peek into the future of what's coming for TurboLinks? I think it's going to be called Harmony. I don't think I said that. The new revolutionary, amazing thing that DHH is going to announce at RailsConf that's going to completely change all our lives in a completely meaningful and impactful way forevermore. I wonder if that's going to be a rebrand of TurboLinks then. If, if we think that the technology is going to be in there, are they going to rebrand the tool? No, I don't think they will. Because TurboLinks was written everywhere in there. Like I think they're just going to like add some changes to TurboLinks and then... Called it that. I don't know really exactly what they're going to do with this new builder. Like, what is it going to offer you? Is it just going to offer you an easier way to write them? Or is it going to like put stuff in for you out of the box? Or does it set up HTTP2 for you? Or like, how's that all going to work? I think that's what we're going to see. I don't think they're going to rebrand server links. Yeah, it's probably something that just will, sit, will just sit on top of it. Yeah. I mean, why server links has such a big backing, like, not just in. Rails, so why rebrand the tool? Well, TurboLinks also has a fairly bad name in some circles. So, <laughs> well, I when I first started Rails, TurboLinks was bad. I don't know that changed very quickly. I feel like I feel like it, whenever I joined, TurboLinks was bad. People were like, "Don't use TurboLinks. Always use Skip TurboLinks." But I never knew why. And then now it seems to be good again. I don't know. No, there's still people that'll tell you don't use TurboLinks. And it seems to me that I don't think TurboLinks has actually changed. I mean, I'm sure it's improved, you know, just like anything improves over time. 
but mainly because most people don't know how to use TurboLinks is my guess. Why they're like, oh, you know, they're, they're going along there. And, and it's partly because TurboLinks is on by default when you start a new Rails app. So you're just happily going along, building your app, and then you get bit by something. You don't know what's going on. You search for the error and it's like, oh, you had TurboLinks. You take TurboLinks out of your gem file and it, and it works now. And so, oh, TurboLinks is bad, you know. Well, like what type of errors? Because the only issue I've ever had with TurboLinks is like bootstrap or it's JavaScript. It's JavaScript related issues with TurboLinks. And, you know, I don't really blame TurboLinks for that. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's the nature of how like some of the assumptions that like the old jQuery plugins to extend, you know, component behavior essentially in the jQuery ecosystem. They don't initialize because what TurboLinks does essentially is it makes the, the background request to fetch the page that you're navigating to. And then just replaces the body, but it retains the head uh, section and all the initialized JavaScript remains intact. But it will fire like a TurboLinks load event, but none of those jQuery plugins are listening for that and they don't reinitialize. And you have to be aware that you need to go reinitialize things. And that's kind of a pain. I think they would agree that TurboLinks itself was kind of a marketing fail, but probably the only marketing fail was turning it on by default. Because if you were explicit about it, then you'd be kind of aware of some of those gotchas where initially it just bit people right out of the box and kind of created that, that bad taste in their mouth. I've got a friend that, that on one of our back channel uh, communications had mentioned that TurboLinks is, is actually so kind of revolutionary and, and powerful, but, and it got rejected out of hand because of some of these reasons. But in, in a way, it was a very forward-thinking library and kind of ahead of its time. It's, it was akin to... Apple taking the headphone jack off of their devices where everybody complained and then they realized, oh, well, maybe wireless is better. But it takes some time for everybody to kind of catch up to that. And I think, I think that time might be now uh, for TurboLinks, especially in lieu of some of this new stuff that's going to come. Right. Yeah. But like I said, I don't blame TurboLinks because jQuery is not reinitializing. It's just, it, yeah, it is helpful to know about that. But I don't know. Like I said, TurboLinks was bad when I started. I never knew why it wasn't. I wasn't at that point where I could understand why. Now it seems to be fine again. Yeah, I'd say that's probably more of an artifact of like the the circles you're socializing in right now <laughs> than than like the general sense of the community. Well, that's the internet. Or no, it's Twitter. <laughs> there you go. Now now it all makes sense. Right. I you know the average person they're like, oh, I'm having an issue. I removed TurboLinks. I'm not having that issue anymore. Therefore, it's TurboLinks's fault. I feel like TurboLinks gives you a lot of things, though, that if you just turn it off, like now that's all gone. Yeah. I mean, Nate actually told me this at one point when we were working together a couple of years ago. He made this comment, which made me really think about it. TurboLinks is a library just like any other library that you're going to have in your in your application. And if you're going to use a library, you should probably learn how to use it properly (laughs) type thing. And yeah, a lot of the issue just came from people not knowing how to, how to use it, you know? And yeah, not even understanding all the benefit that you do get from it, you know, being turned on automatically. Yeah. I think that was the major fail there from like kind of a, a rollout perspective is that it just came turned on by default. And so that expectation of, oh, like if a team's going to go adopt Vue.js and they haven't used it before, they're rolling from a different technology into that. 
the expectation is this, we have to ramp up. It's going to take time. We've got to learn the best practices. You know, we may, it may take our team six months to really become proficient in it. That's the expectation that's set. But with TurboLinks turned on by default, the expectation was that it would just work out of the box and there, and I don't have to go learn anything. Right? Okay. When you say it like that, it makes more sense. Like if, yeah, I guess I do kind of consider things that come out of rails on out of the box are just going to work. Well, and, and it actually does. Yeah, it, it, it does, but it depends on what other what other things you've pulled into your like right. what other monstrosities you've pulled into your Rails app. I never have any problems with it for anything other than jQuery, though. I guess that's what I'm thinking. I don't think I have. I've never hit anything with it other than that. Yeah, I would say you you do have to design your app with an eye towards TurboLink. So anybody that's going to use it, I would certainly recommend that they they start with that expectation that I've got to read the documentation and I've got to learn how to use this tool. I should probably read the Turbolinks documentation. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read the Turbolinks doc. Well, I, okay, I take the back. I've skimmed it. And the only thing I remember from the Turbolinks documentation is that Turbolinks is what gives you that little bar across the top of your app when something's loading. That's the only thing I remember from their documentation. <laughs> yeah, go, go spend some time with it. It's, it's actually really good. And it's a, it's a very forward-thinking library. I mean, it's, it's very effective. I mean, GitHub is using a, a strategy that's similar to it on their stuff. And they may be, I don't know, I don't know what their plans are, but it seems like they're trying to get themselves more aligned with you know, what comes out with Rails out of the box. I don't know if they have plans to move to Turbolinks, um, but they're already using a strategy that's very similar. I have spent a lot of time in Turbolinks issues, though. I will say that. Would you guys see that Rack 2.2.1, 2.2.1 got released? I saw that, but I didn't pay any attention to what's actually in it. So what do we, what do we get? So from what I've heard, and I'm surprised we haven't run into this at CodeFun, is because we're on 2.1.1, I believe. Apparently, a lot of people have had a lot of problems, and they're trying to, like, these have mainly been bug-fixing expeditions for them but i've heard some really bad things about the turb or the rack upgrades but i haven't seen anything from us and it's only made me slightly paranoid that we're just not noticing something because chris oliver who runs go rails we were talking on remote ruby the other day he said all of his active storage stuff just completely went down when with the app the rack upgrade the the current one that we're talking about no the one before 2.1.1 Okay. I was, we are on 2.1.1. So that's what I'm saying. If you're out there and you haven't upgraded, you may want to look because there are a lot of issues that people have been reporting. But this release, I'm pretty sure it was basically just bug fixes. Yeah. Some session changes. Yeah. It's not a ton. Well, they're doing some stuff with the e-tags too now. I'll put the change log in the show notes, but I think a lot of it had to do with fixing things that came out of 2.1. Well, that's rough. But hey, at least it's getting back on track, right? Yep. There's a there's a lot of activity on this on this recently. So it's been interesting to kind of watch that all come to play. There's something their same site stuff came in 2.1.0, I believe, which if you don't know, there was a change in Google Chrome recently on February 4th with the way they handle same site attributes on cookies, I believe. And I was reading a lot of stuff around the time that was happening that basically no one was ready for this change that apparently was going to impact a lot of people. We didn't, we didn't see any issues with it, but 
we were getting warnings in the console before the change happened. And once the change happened, we stopped getting warnings and we don't seem to have any issues with it. So, but there's a lot of people that apparently do, and there's a change in rails that's coming for it, but it didn't get released before February 4th. And some people are a little upset about that. Yeah. I think we benefited from that because I, what I think is happening at the browser level is we don't emit cookies. We did we did send an expired cookie down to say this cookie expired in the past, right? So essentially deleting the cookie, but the, the browser doesn't, doesn't typically delete that cookie until the next request is made. I think that's why we didn't see any issues because we're not cookieing uh, on ad render or anything like that. And so I think the browser essentially just looks at it and says, Oh, these are all expired and, and just gets rid of them. Cause I think we looked into this. You can't tell rack not to create a cookie like on a request, I'm pretty sure I know I looked into doing that to just not add the cookie in the first place whatsoever so that we don't have to even worry about expiring it. Yeah. I'm sure there's some strategies we can use for that, but yeah, essentially we were just sending down an expired saying this cookie should not exist. You know, the standard rails cookie shouldn't exist, you know, for our ad renders, which is a pretty unique case. I mean, most rails apps are not going to want to do that. Yeah. Well, they're going to have to be cognizant of it now that that new California law has taken effect. One thing uh, I've noticed, and I don't know when he joined the team or the main maintenance team for Rack, but uh, one thing I'm excited about is Samuel Williams is now contributing to Rack and, and helping with releases and kind of coordinating some of that stuff. And he's, for those who don't know, he's he's the one doing a lot of work with uh, Ruby concurrency under the hood for us. And I think he's going to have a significant impact, like his work is going to have a significant impact on Ruby 3 performance, especially where, where IO latency is concerned. And a lot of those enhancements are going to come without requiring us to make any changes to our existing app structure, which is really exciting. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I saw that, but I didn't know. I had never heard of him before, honestly. But then I started following him once I saw his name start getting all over the rack upgrade stuff. Yeah, he's got a lot of great presentations on on essentially IO latency and how we can improve things in the Ruby ecosystem. Because most latency that especially web apps are encountering uh, is IO related, whether that's talking to the file system or talking to a database or to Redis or something like that. And if we can optimize those things and run concurrently process things through, he's using fibers under the hood to facilitate a lot of this stuff. And he's making even changes to Ruby itself to facilitate it. It's, it's very exciting stuff. I mean, I think we're going to see some significant speed ups. Now I don't want to, set the expectation too high because I'm not really sure what, what we can expect from that, but he's got some very interesting projects that I would encourage people to look into. So one of them is the Falcon web server. I'm excited to run a sophisticated, mature rails app on top of Falcon waiting for that day because he's, he's got some pretty impressive stats around what Falcon is capable of. Yeah. I've never heard of Falcon before. What, what is it? Falcon is essentially uh, application servers akin to uh, Puma or what is it, the other one, uh, Unicorn. So it's it's in that family of, of products. And so essentially, instead of booting up with Puma, you could tell it to boot up with Falcon, but it's not quite fully compatible yet. So there's a few hoops you would have to jump through to get your Rails app running on it. But theoretically, and this is something I'm really anxious to try, is standing something like CodeFund up on top of that and seeing what improvements we might see from it. Interesting. I'm going to have to look into this a little bit more. Have you guys submitted your RailsConf CFPs yet? Because oh, it yeah. is coming quickly. What's the deadline? 
like in a couple of days. <laughs> I better get on that. I take it, uh, Andrew, that you already submitted yours. Hell no. I am. I'm probably uh, no, definitely not. I am a submit like on the last second kind of person. I always am. I have tried so hard not to be. I started working on this a while ago, but I have a title, but I don't have anything else. But it's in my it's in my head. <laughs> my teachers hated me in high school for this exact same reason. Oh, and college. It's February fourteenth is when it closes. I'm beginning to understand why some of those note and organization apps don't work for you. No, yeah, it it does. I have a doctor's note that can explain why. <laughs> no, it's it, it. No, I'm gonna. I really, really, really wanted to not submit on the last day. I know that's terrible because I know a lot of people do that, and then the people reviewing them have to, you know, comb through a ton of them on at a, a small amount of time. But I, I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't not submit on the last day. That's just who I am. <laughs> yeah, those note-taking apps for me end up turning into like my email inbox, which is essentially just hundreds, if not thousands, of unread messages <laughs> that, that I eventually come back to and say, oh, inbox zero, just select everything in archive. Oh, yeah. That's how I get inbox zero. It's pretty nice. I've never had any problem with it. Although, <laughs> Eric is going to kill us one day for this. The other day, he asked me if I'd seen some email, and I was like, no, not yet. He's like, well, can you look for it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, dude, you and Nate are the worst about this email thing. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I've always been like this. <laughs> well, deep work kind of lends itself, like creative deep work lends itself to kind of shunning the, the typical you know, patterns of organizing your day and kind of managing your day. The Paul Graham's got a great article on this called Maker's Schedule versus Manager's Schedule. It's really fantastic. And anybody that needs to communicate that to their management team, it's a, it's a great article to pass along to, to people to kind of understand the differences between those two worlds. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know, if you're a developer, you're, chances are you're probably not that great with email, I would imagine. I, I certainly, I hate email. I'll just put it that way. Like email is just bothersome thing to me. Most of it is unnecessary in my opinion. So, so what yeah. you're saying is you, you also like meetings. No, I, I prefer email to meetings. <laughs> the one thing I hate more than email is sitting in a meeting that could have been emailed. But if, if it gets emailed, I can't guarantee that I'm going to read it. So maybe it's, <laughs> there's, there's the issue. <laughs> maybe it's better that I have to sit through the meeting. Uh, whenever I get a meeting, I'm just like, oh, it's basically like a break to me. I'm like, I'm not, I'm going to listen, but not super closely because typically anything I've, in my experience, anything that comes out of a meeting that I didn't really pay attention to will be reiterated by someone who's more mature than me or, or at least like cares more about, not cares, but when I, at my last company, we would always have these meetings and the next day one of the developers I worked with would reiterate to me the important points from that meeting because there were typically a very small amount. And that worked out perfectly for me. That's nice. why I need a code fund, Nate. I need someone to tell me all the meeting information. You need an intern to summarize the meetings for you. Yeah. I mean, typically there's like, in my experience, not in every meeting, there's typically five sentences that some people need to be aware of from every meeting. That goes for at least an hour. Five sentences. 
maybe maybe less, maybe a little more, but there's really a very small amount of information that you actually have to like take note of moving forward after that meeting's over. True. I do so, need an intern. On on a similar note, I guess. So have you guys, I don't know if it's a book or just a methodology, but have you heard of Shape Up? I think it's called. Yes. The base camp. I think it's from Base Camp. Uh, a friend of mine, there that that company is beginning to implement it. And I had never heard of it before, but the thing that caught my attention was the instead of a daily stand-up, it was just kind of going into base camp and like writing your update in base camp and anyone that cares to, you know, that cares about your update can read it there instead of everyone standing around and telling it, which in my experience, standups are not typically as short as they should be. So yeah, (laughs) when I, when I heard that, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I need to read more into this. We do that kind of at code fun. Yeah, we've got a, a utility in Slack called GeekBot that will prompt prompt every member of the team to essentially answer the typical stand-up questions. What did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? Do you have any blockers? And it's, it's really not too bad of an annoyance. And I, I, I have some degree of faith that somebody's looking at that. <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> Sometimes I forget about it. Well, here's what actually happens. In the morning, it sends you a message and it's like, hey, let's do your little stand-up thing real quick. And you just answer like three or four questions from it. If I don't do it first thing in the morning, right when it first asks me, I, I don't do it. I forget about it every time. I'm not the greatest at doing it. Yeah, for me, it like nags, it kind of nags at me for a while. So if I'm looking at Slack, if I open Slack and I see the little notification icon that GeekBots like got messages for me, it, it, like that will annoy me enough to just go get it done. Yeah, but I click on it because I'm like, oh, I need to do this. And then I get distracted within the 10 seconds it takes to click on the notification. And then I I forget to do it. So the notification icon is gone. I need to figure out how to set it up to remind me or something. Well, it does. It'll it'll nag you throughout the day if you haven't done it. Doesn't nag me. Oh, really? It it, it stays out of my way. Yeah, it keeps nagging me. So I don't know. I don't know if there's some admin settings. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to need that nag. I need to be nagged. But Shape Up's pretty interesting. If you've, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've gone through some of it. And I really liked a lot of the concepts that they were kind of talking about from a higher level. I mean, it's a project management kind of geared book in my mind. Yeah, it's def- it was definitely an interesting read. Nate, you finished it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really fantastic. It's, it shows a, a kind of a deep understanding of of what creative work requires, right? You've got kind of the strategic minds shaping up, you know, you know to, to quote the, the title of the book, but they're shaping the work before they hand it down to the team, but they leave plenty of room for the teams that are actually working on it to, to employ their creative energies and kind of steer the direction of those ideas that got handed to them. But the ideas are refined enough that people aren't sitting around wondering what to do. I'll have to give it a read then. If only for the reason that I don't want to be the only one that have hasn't read it. So I want to be like the cool kids. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really good. I think the problem, like with any methodology, the problem is finding the discipline to actually do it. So using you know, long form communication, sticking to the process and all, all of those types of things uh, require 
discipline and buy-in from the entire team. And if, if somebody's not doing that, especially if you've got somebody at the higher levels that is not willing to participate fully in the program, then, then it all kind of falls apart. You guys got anything else you want to talk about this week? I was going to ask if I know you keep a, a, a closer watch on what's happening in Ruby land. Is there anything else going on like the rack release? Not much has come out. I think there was a new bundler update. I could be wrong about that. That could have been a little bit ago. No, there's not much that I've noticed, at least. I have noticed there's a new sort of, I guess I would call it maybe a plugin on top of binding and IRB. Have you guys seen that at all? I'm trying to find it. Oh, is it the break? Like break yeah. library? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to test that out. I do too. It looks really cool. I wish there was an example of how to use it on the README, which is something I wrote down in my list. So is I've got a question for you guys in terms of usage of Pry. So I'm a longtime Pry user, and I've also used PryNav, which I think is provides some of the facility that this new break library provides. So you can kind of nav the the stack a bit as as you break on you know your binding prize. What I'm curious about though is Rails, you know, comes bundled up with Bybug, and then there's Rails Bybug. But I I always just kind of throw those gems out because I don't use them. Do you guys have experience with with Bybug or or Rails Bybug or Prybug? What is it? Bybug Pry or I've written down the word Bybug once in my entire life. I have only used Pry other than that. I've used, I think it's Pry Bybug is the name of the one that I typically reach for. And honestly, the only reason why I do it is so that I can use like the next, the continue, that that kind of thing. Is, by, is that what Bybug is providing? Because I haven't spent any time like researching what Bybug gives you. I'm assuming, I always assumed that it was like a competitor to Pry. But it almost sounds that, I mean, now we've got pry by bug. So is it just providing the ability to navigate after you've broken on a breakpoint? I think so. Or at least that's the way that I've used it. I don't know what else it gives, but that's the only thing. That's the only reason why I've used it. Okay. So what does pry nav have? Because I've, I've only used default binding pry and you said it allows you to navigate the stack. Do you mean like in a, like CDing into other files from pry? Because you can do that with normal pry. No, this is like, so you hit the, it's what allows you to go up the call stack. So if you hit a, a binding pry, you can type the keyword up and start to navigate up and see what the previous call was within in the state that, that was kind of bundled up in that binding at that stage. And then you can keep navigating up the call tree and then you can come back down to where you were. I have you also can do that. Yeah. And you can do like your, your next and your step and all those kind of things as well. Well, I'll have to try that. I don't really know why I would want that, but I'm sure I will at some point. I want this debugger to be nice, though, because I want it to work with VS Code. There's going to be a, a nice solution for VS Code. I'm so, I'm actually kind of surprised that there's not something already just like out of the box, like you install some plugin and you get kind of the Visual Studio style debugger experience. You do, but the problem is it works fine with Ruby but it doesn't work good with Rails. And there's another one that someone was working on, and I tried it not too long ago, but it was just another plugin, but it didn't work very well. I don't know. They all work for Ruby, though. They work for Ruby just fine, but 
they I've always had problems with it with Rails. I wonder if that's due to the heavy meta programming nature of you know the Rails source. Well, it's usually like the plugins don't really work, which has always kind of been like it's always kind of been interesting to me. There's definitely some issue, or there's just not enough people working on it. I can't tell, but yeah, there's always issues actually getting your breakpoints to hit with the plugins that they provide. The one that really I don't like, I think I could actually do this and this would work, but I like refuse to accept that this is the solution I have to have is you have to start your Rails app with a different command. You can't just like arbitrarily add, you know, debugger points in the app and while it's running through VS Code, like it you have to like run it with a specific command and I don't want to do that. I want to just place in like debugger points Maybe I have to add a gem to my gem file. Like, like that's fine. But I don't want to have to start the app a completely different way. That's kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Hopefully they'll get it there. Yeah. I think the other, like, you can't, like, it'll just keep, start, it'll start up a new session of Rails. Like, I would like to be able to connect to an existing session. But we'll see. It's getting there. So one, one last thing that I think we should talk about is this podcast. Like, what, what's our format going forward? What are we going to do. And one of those things that we do want to do is start bringing on some guests that can kind of share their knowledge with the community and share the things that they're working on. So in lieu of that, I was going to ask you guys if you have any anybody in mind that you would like to bring onto the show. DHH. <laughs> I want to talk to Molly Struvy from Dev.2. Cool. Yeah, very cool. I would love to talk to Sandy Metz. Oh yeah, me too. Oh, and I, I did... I did my homework and I did go watch her keynote. It was, it was very uh, eye-opening. Very, it's a fantastic keynote from the last, uh, was it RubyConf or RailsConf? RubyConf. Yeah, for RubyConf. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was, it was special. Yeah, that was a good one. I would like to get Samuel Williams in here to kind of talk about Falcon and some of his other projects and especially the, the, the fiber work that he's doing uh, at a lower level and what it might mean for, for the rest of the community. Yeah, well, we already have a guest lined up in the future, so stay tuned for that. We should probably leave it as a surprise for now because I think it's a pretty big one. Nice. Yeah, a nice little teaser. Cool. So you guys ready to wrap this up? Yeah, I think I think we've kind of exhausted our topics for today. Sounds good. Talk to you guys later. See you later. Have good weekends. Yep, you too. We'll see you. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.